All right. Thank you very much. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 2, and I'd like for us to think about Christmas in light of what we find in the book of Acts. Hope you're doing well this morning. It's good to see you. Glad we could be together. It's always a wonderful time of year in so many ways, and yet a busy time of year, and we often struggle to keep our focus during this time of year. And so that's why these times in worship and in God's Word are so very important in light of the busyness of the season and all the concerns that we have in light of all that's going on in our lives and in our country. What I'd like to do is read for us verses 37 through 41 and make some connections with this text and uh, the Christmas story and hopefully encourage all of us uh, to think about Christmas um, in light of the whole issue of receiving. Let me read for us beginning in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. If you notice in verse 37, after Peter's preached his Pentecost sermon, the people there are convicted of their sin, and they ask the question, what shall we do? And twice in this passage, the idea of receiving is brought up in verse 38. He encourages them to repent and be baptized. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then later on in verse 41, indeed, after he's finished and they're uh, responding, it says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. What I'd like for us to do is think, especially this morning, about Christmas in terms of receiving, giving and receiving. Now, if your family is like our family, you probably have already started some discussions along the lines of make sure you update your Amazon wish list so we can tell what you might like or what we might do to bless you this Christmas. And so um, a lot of what goes on at Christmas time centers around giving and receiving. And the question is, why is that? And for us as Christians, we understand why that is because The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so Christmas time is a way of celebrating the gift of God in giving his son to the world. And yet one of the most important aspects of this whole celebration of Christmas is receiving. And the question of whether or not we've actually received the gift that God has given Now, think about how um, this Christmas might play out for you. Um, Imagine someone decides to give you this Christmas uh, some um, Spider-Man footed PJs. Now, the question is, what will you do 
with that gift. There are a number of different options that you have. You can trash them, throw them out because you don't really want footed PJs, you get too hot at night, or you don't like Spider-Man or whatever it may be. You could just hide them away. Just put them in a drawer and forget about them. You could re-gift them to somebody else you don't like, you know, or something like that. Or you could cut them up and make them dust claws to clean your furniture. You could use them in a way that's different from what they were intended. Or you could wear them only when the person who gave them to you was around to make them think that you really like the gift. Or you could welcome the gift and actually use it gladly as it was intended to be used. And so the reality is there are all kinds of ways that we can respond to a gift. And not all those ways are equal by any way, shape, or form. Let's say that you find out after the fact that those PJs are made out of mithril. Mithril is something that I guess J.R.R. Tolkien came up with. That is a silvery kind of metal that is stronger than steel, but light enough that you can wear as a t-shirt. And what if you found out that someone gave you that because there was going to be a nuclear explosion and you might need something like mithril to protect you from that disaster. That would put the gift in a whole new light. And that's exactly what we need the Bible to do for us is to put the gift of God, the gift of his own son, in a whole new light for us so that we can see it as it really is, see our need for it, see the glory of it, and receive it. And so that's my encouragement this morning is to see what's going on at Christmas time as being a very, very serious thing because in John chapter 1, it talks about the word um, becoming flesh. And in that passage in John 1, it says, He came to his own, speaking of Jesus, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so God's gift was received by some, but rejected by many. The question, though, is, what does it mean to receive the gift? I mean, there's a sense in which you could say all of the various options that I laid out for receiving those PJs were, in a sense, receiving them. I received it, and I threw it away. I received it, I put it in a drawer. I received it, and I gave it to somebody else. I mean, you could argue that there's a sense in which I received that gift in all those ways, and yet there's another sense in which you'd say, no, not unless you actually received it gladly and used it for what it was intended to be used for. You didn't really receive it. And so that's why it's important to ask the question, what does it mean to receive the gift of God's Son? What does that actually look like? And that's really what Acts chapter 2, this passage, describes for us. It talks about seeing and turning and trusting. Those are all important elements. Uh, Three strands of a cord that, that woven together aren't easily broken, as it says in Ecclesiastes, that all are a part of what it means to receive the gift of God's Son. And so the first thing that I just want to highlight is, again, just very briefly, we've spent a lot of time on this aspect of it, but in Acts 2.37, 
It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now the idea of piercing to the heart again is the whole idea of being convicted of their sin. And I'll just remind you one more time of a great picture of what that looks like or what that should look like. And that's in Second Samuel 12, when David has committed adultery and murder. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him the story of the rich man and the poor man. poor man has only a little baby lamb. And the rich man has all kinds of lambs and flocks and herds. And the rich man receives a visitor. And he decides that instead of killing one of his animals, he would just take the poor man's only little ewe lamb that's just like a daughter to him kill it and serve it to his guest. And you recall that David's response was in anger at that man in the story, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And I tell that story because Nathan says, you're the man. Because what David needed to see was that what he did deserved death that he committed adultery, he had um, Bathsheba's husband murdered, and he had despised God, is what God tells David through Nathan. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we ever thought that not just David's sin deserves death, or the guy in the story who took the lamb and sacrificed it for his own guest deserved death, But have we ourselves been convicted that we ourselves have committed sin worthy of death? That I've despised God, I've sinned against others, and what I have done truly deserves death. Uh, John Calvin on this passage said, This is the beginning of repentance. This is the entrance unto godliness to be sorry for our sins and to be wounded with the feeling of our miseries. Those men, therefore, are profitably pricked alone who are willingly sorrowful and do also seek some remedy at God's hands. So what he's saying is, unless you really see that you've done something serious, an offense to God and others, and indeed so offensive that you deserve to die for it, you're not going to seek God for the remedy. You're not going to seek God for some kind of rescue. But these men, these people, men and women, in this passage say, what shall we do? What what are we going to do? We deserve to die in light of what we've done. So what are our options? Is there a way out? And so all of us, in a sense, have to ask the question, Can I say, I recognize that my sin does three things at least. These are just summary statements. My sin lies, my sin destroys, and my sin deserves death. And the emphasis is on my, not just other people's sin, but my sin lies, my sin destroys, and my sin deserves death. How does my sin lie? It lies to me about what it is and about what it will do for me makes all kinds of promises of great and wonderful things I can have if I'll just disobey God and do what I want to do. And we know it's a lie from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. 
It destroys because it destroys my relationship with God, a holy God, and it destroys my relationship with other people as well. And it deserves both physical and spiritual death as a just punishment. And so it's so important that we recognize that uh, conviction of sin is, is, in a sense, the preparation for the remedy. And this Sunday we've talked about already the idea of being prepared. And that's why John the Baptist could have and preach a baptism of repentance and preparation for the coming of Christ. Well, the second thing is that we need not only to see our sin for what it is, we need to turn to God for mercy and grace. We need to turn to God for the remedy for our sin. And that's why in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. And repentance is not penance. Repentance is not penance. And that was the big issue with uh, the Reformation and Martin Luther. Roman Catholic Church taught penance. They did not teach repentance. They taught that you could make up for your sins, so to speak, by saying so many Hail Marys and doing certain things and uh, those kinds of things. But Luther was very clear that the Bible calls us not to penance, but to repentance. And obviously the question is, what does that mean? And one of the great pictures that we have in Scripture of repentance is in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And we know the story very well. Man has two sons. One of the sons, the younger of the two, says, I want my inheritance. The father gives it to him. He goes off to a far land, and he squanders it on loose living, basically doing all the things he shouldn't be doing. And he ends up in the pigsty with no one giving anything to him, having lost it all and totally at his end. And it says in verse 17 of Luke 15, he came to his senses. Repentance is a coming to our senses, recognizing that what I thought was going to bring me life and joy and peace and happiness is the dead end and the destructive thing that God told me it was. And I come to my senses, and it says, he said, I will get up and go to my father. I will get up and go to my father. I ran away from my father. Now I'm coming to my senses. I see that I am so foolish, so crazy, so wicked in what I've done. I'm going to turn around and go back to my father. And what does he say? He will say to his father, he says, I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, meaning I've sinned against God and in your sight. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So when he says, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against God. Um, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me one of your hired men. He's asking for both mercy and grace. He's asking that his father would not give him what he deserves and would actually give him what he doesn't deserve. Actually make him something that he doesn't even deserve to be. And that's exactly what repentance is about. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. And what is that change of mind about? It's about God, and it's about myself, it's about my sin, and it's about what I consider to be my right to do what I want to do. 
my right to live my life the way I want to live it. It's a change of mind about all those things. In the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, in modern English, it says about repentance. The saving repentance is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin by faith in Christ humble themselves for it with godly sorrow, hatred of it, and self self, excuse me, loathing. They pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. So they, those who've been convicted of the evil of their sin and hate their sin, then ask God for pardon, it says, which is for mercy, and they ask him for the ask God for the strength of grace to do what to live in a way that's well pleasing to God. And so we can ask ourselves: Can I say not only that I recognize that my sin lies and destroys and deserves death, but can I also say, to one degree or another, in one form or another, I want to be delivered from sin so I can be right with God? Is that the cry of my heart to one degree or another. You know, there are a couple of different sinful dispositions that, that we have as sinners. One is the irreligious sinful disposition that says, I want sin and I don't want God. But there's also a religious sinful disposition that says, I want sin and I want God. That's the sinful religious response. But repentance says, I don't want sin, I do want God. That, that's what repentance is saying. Is, it says, I don't want this sin that is lying and destructive and deserves death. I want to be right with God. I want to obey God. I want to be delivered, not only from the penalty of sin, from hell, but I want to be delivered from the power of sin over my life. So that I love God and love people as God calls me to. Charles Simeon was a pastor a couple hundred years ago who um, said that he constantly lived with and tried to cultivate both a sense of his sinfulness and a sense of his acceptance with God. He said, the only way that I can keep my boat upright and don't um, turn my boat over, so to speak, is if I make sure that those two things are what they should be in my life. Because my sense of sin keeps me humble before God. And it reminds me that I deserve nothing good from his hand. But my sense of my acceptance in Christ makes me rejoice even in the face of my sin and causes me to overflow with worship and gratitude and joy. Because no matter how great my sin is and how great my sense of my sin is, my rejoicing in my Savior is even greater. So that he could say, you know what? Um, I know God has forgiven me, but I still believe, like it says in Ezekiel, that I should be loathing my sinfulness. That there should be a sense in me that I, that I am conscious, as he would say, of two things. My own vileness and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Those two things are meant to be held in proper tension, that I see that even as a Christian, that my sin is still sin, 
There isn't Christian sin and un, you know, unbelieving sin. And they're two different things. Sin is sin. No matter whether we commit it or an unbeliever commits it, it's sin. It's the same vile thing in the eyes of God. And yet, it makes all the difference in the world if we have a Savior who has cleansed us from that sin and delivered us from the penalty and is in the process of delivering us from the power of that sin. He says, by those two, holding those two things in tension, he says, I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. Well, the last thing is that we need to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so um, coming to Christ, receiving the gift of God's Son involves a conviction of sin so that we see what we need to see about our sin. It involves a turning to God for mercy and grace in light of what we have seen about our sin. And it involves an entrusting of ourselves to Jesus as Savior and Lord, entrusting ourselves to him in light of who he is. And he's both Savior and Lord. So it says in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you notice in this passage, he doesn't um, specifically say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Paul says later on in the book of Acts when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But Peter is saying the same thing. He's just using different words. He's saying, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which is the same thing as believe in the name of Jesus Christ and show it by your baptism. Publicly profess your faith in the name of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you. And you will be forgiven and you will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit and you will be saved. A great picture of this, uh, trusting in Jesus as both Lord and Savior, is in Matthew 22, where we have uh, the story of the parable of the marriage feast. And in that parable, there's a king who has a son who, and this king throws a party uh, for the a wedding of his son, and he invites a bunch of people to come, and they end up saying, no, thank you, too busy, don't want to come. He actually sends out some servants to encourage them to come, and they beat some of them and kill some of them, and he ends up uh, judging them for that. And then he tells his servants, go on and find other people. And invite them to the feast um, so that we can celebrate uh, the wedding of my son. And so they do that and his house is filled um, with dinner guests. And then it says in verse 11 and following of um, Matthew 22. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how do you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's all that about? What, what is the issue with this man who, who receives the invitation to go to the wedding feast and yet he's wearing his own clothes? Well, the issue is evidently 
In the story, the king provides clothing for everyone at the door when they get there. They're there to put on a robe or something that uh, he provides for them to be a part of that celebration. This man refuses to be clothed in what the king has provided. He does not receive it. And as a result, he is rejected. That's the point of the story. So how does that relate to Jesus? Well, the Bible says, if we were to read in Isaiah 61, it talks about uh, God has clothed us in garments of salvation. He's clothed us in a robe of righteousness. And in Romans 5.17, it says that Jesus is the one who provides us with a gift of righteousness, meaning he cleanses us of our sin and he puts to our account his perfect obedience to God. And he clothes us in perfect righteousness, his own perfect righteousness. And that's the only way we can be a part of the eternal celebration of God and his son is if we receive the gift that's offered to us. And that's why it's so important at Christmas time we think about the fact that God is offering us something. And the question is whether or not we have received it and are receiving it. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves, can I say, one way or the other, does my heart say, I entrust myself wholly to Jesus as my Savior and my Lord? Because trust isn't simply about our believing. Let me use the term believing because a lot of people will say, yes, I believe in Jesus. But the question is, not simply do I believe that Jesus existed, do I believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but have I entrusted myself to him to be my Savior and to be my Lord? Because he is both Lord and Savior. You can't say, ah, I'd, li- I'd like the saving part, but not the lordship part. I want to still do my own thing. I just want him to keep me. I want him to keep me out of hell. It doesn't work that way. In order to be forgiven of our sins, we receive Jesus, and He is Lord and Savior. And so, the question is: Is that the cry of my heart? There, again, Charles Simeon would talk about the fact that the way he came to Christ was he realized that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of Christ. And that the animals being sacrificed were a picture of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. And that when the priest or the people would put their hands on the head of the goat or the lamb, that they were transferring their their guilt onto that animal. And that animal was taking the guilt that they had and dying in their place. And that's exactly what we are doing When we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we take all of our sin and we lay it on Jesus and he in return gives us his gift of righteousness. But we don't just give him our our guilt, we give him our life. And he doesn't just rescue us from hell, he gives us himself. So it's a transfer, not simply of guilt, but it's of life, not simply of rescue, but of life. And therefore, to believe in Jesus is to really see him for who he is, to see what he's done for us, to see our sin in light of that, and to say, 
there's no better thing for me to do than to receive him in light of all that he is, both Lord and Savior. Interesting enough, interestingly enough, John Calvin said at this point, faith must begin with this readiness and willing desire to obey. So why would he say that? Because to receive Jesus by faith is to receive him for all that he is, both Savior and Lord. Let me just close with this thought. Is it important for us to receive the gift that God has provided in Jesus? Now, most of us here would say, of course it is. As Christians, we know that it is. And why is it so important? Because there are some really... um, Strong words that God uses in the Bible. Um, for instance, if you read in First Chronicles 29, it says, If you forsake God, he will reject you. Meaning, if you, if you, if you receive, or in other ways, it's also said in other ways in the Bible, if you receive God and receive what God offers, he will receive you. If you reject him, he will reject you. You know, oftentimes at Christmas we'll ask people, what do you want? Especially children, what do you want for Christmas? And C.S. Lewis would say there's a sense in which that's what God does uh, for us at Christmas time too. He asks the question, question, what do you want? In this sense, he says, you know, C.S. Lewis speaking, he says, I think that there's a sense in which hell, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Now, why would he say that? He would say that because what people are saying when they say no to Jesus, no to the gift of Jesus, no to God, is they're saying, I want to do my will. I don't want to do your will. And I want to I don't want you in my life. I'm fine the way I am. I just I just want to live my life. I want to do my thing. I'm a good person. I just want to just want to be what I want to be and do what I want to do. I I don't want your gift. I don't want you involved in my life in that way. If you want to help me accomplish what I want to accomplish, that's fine. But other than that, I don't want that. I don't want you. So C.S. Lewis would say um Paul is, excuse me, God is asking people, what are, um, what do you want? And people are saying, I want you to leave me alone. And there's a sense in which hell is God's saying, okay, I'll give you what you want. But those who say, I want you, God says, I'll give you what you want to. And so what do we want? Do we want to be free from our sin? Do we want God? Do we want to receive the gift that God has given us or, or not? And that's really the question of Christmas because the, the soberness of Christmas is God offers us mercy in Jesus. But if we reject mercy, there's only one other option, and that's justice. There's no injustice with God. There's only mercy or justice. And God offers us mercy in Jesus. But if we reject that, 
then all that's left is justice. So my encouragement is, even as we as Christians celebrate the gift of God's Son, to recognize that there are plenty of people around us who have not received that gift. And we need to pray. And we need, by God's grace, when we have the opportunity to share the good news, that God offers them mercy in Jesus. And that Christmas is all about, it's not just about giving financial gifts or material gifts. It's about the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we truly celebrate at Christmas time, which is rescue from the penalty and power and ultimately one day the presence of sin. We thank you so much for that. And yet it is a very sobering thing that to not receive the gift of Jesus, the gift of mercy that you offer us, results in justice. And so, Father, help us, even during this Christmas season, to look for opportunities not only to pray but also to share the good news that Christmas is about the gift of your Son who is an able and willing Savior for sinners, which we are about to celebrate in this Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.